In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, Lord, for this day, and we ask for your blessing. Grant us your peace and open our minds and hearts to you to understand your word and apply it in our lives. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Uh, good evening, everybody. God willing, today we're going to continue studying uh, in the book of Genesis. Uh, last week, we finished just, uh, we finished Genesis chapter 7, uh, which uh, ended uh, like halfway through the story of Noah and the ark. And uh, so today we're going to conclude the story of Noah and uh, keep going from there. What happened after uh, after Noah and the ark in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Okay, so then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So here, when God is saying God remembered Noah, um, and you know we see like God's plan, and that He's not leaving Noah, who is in the midst of all distress alone, but He was continually thinking about him all the time. Like even though God was not like we don't read about God constantly communicating with Noah, like we don't we don't read about how every day Noah is like seeing visions or that God is speaking to Noah or any of this, right? We 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 see that. God spoke to Noah at the beginning. He told them, how is it to build the ark? And then when it was time for the animals, the animals came into the ark. And then it began to rain. We see all these things happening, fulfilling what God had said. And now after Noah is in the ark, we don't read about any kind of indicator or, or, or you know, communication, conversation, anything that happened between Noah and God. And yet God is remembering Noah. And, and, I, and I mention this because sometimes we feel like even though we understand that God has made us many promises and God promises to, to watch over us and to care for us and to lead us and to guide us and all these things, sometimes we feel like because nothing is actually happening or, you know, we don't feel like anything, like God is not hearing my prayer or God is not fulfilling the things that I'm asking of him or that God is not somehow doing something big in my life or things just kind of seem to be going as they're going. And even in the midst of some kind of a trial, that we're just in the middle of the trial and we say, where is God in this? Like, where is he while this is happening? And so even here we see, even with Noah, that God is, is fulfilling his plan and his plan takes a long time. Actually, um, from beginning to end, uh, this whole process of being in the ark was like a, a little over a year. So, so Noah stayed in the ark for this long period of time, and there's no indicator at all that God is like actively communicating with him, reassuring him, reminding him of his promises, telling him when this is going to end. Actually, Noah doesn't even know when it's going to end. Um, so, so 
here the idea that God remembered Noah, that, that God is, is aware of our situation. God is aware of our distress and that he, he remembers us. He is not leaving us or abandoning us just because he is not actively doing something. He is waiting. There is a time that is to come that God has prepared that will be the time where things are going to happen, where things are going to change, where the next phase is going to begin. And we are to wait with faith and patience just as Noah waited for a long period of time, just trusting that what God had said to him before is true, right? Everything that God told him before is true. He, God didn't need to have to keep reassuring Noah day after day after day, you know, remember what I told you, remember what I told you. No, Noah just believed whatever God said to me before is true and it will take its time and the, the due course will run and then the time will come when the flood will end. So God allows us to go through these periods of time where we feel like, where, where are you, God? Like, the, I, don't, I don't feel your presence with me actively. I don't hear your voice speaking to me actively. And we feel like we are just maybe abandoned. But it is not. Because here it says God remembered Noah, even in the midst of this struggle that he was in. This actually helps us to grow in our faith, that we remember God is with us and that we trust in what he has said, even when we are not actively being reassured all the time necessarily by something that God is, is doing. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot and she returned into the ark to him for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. So what is the reason that Noah is doing this? He's doing this because he wanted to see if there was any land, right? If the water had subsided enough to where there would be any land visible to kind of give a sense of how soon before the, the ark has landed on land and that they would be able to exit the ark, okay? So he first sends out a raven, okay? The raven does not return. So if then he sends out a dove, okay? And again, the dove returns, uh, but um, there was nothing for the dove to land on. Like there was nothing that the dove could do, but the dove returned. And um, St. Augustine, he speaks about kind of a symbolism of what is represented by both the raven and the dove, okay? So St. Augustine, he says, if the ark refers to the church, because we say about the church is the ark of salvation, right? Where people are safe and have salvation inside of the church, um, safe from the flood that is outside. Both the dove and the raven were found therein. Noah had sent those two species of birds. He had the raven and the dove too. If the ark is truly a type of the church, it is seen by necessity, though the, uh, through the great flood of this world to include both the doves and the ravens. What are the ravens? Those who seek their own. And what the doves? Those who seek the things which are of Christ Jesus, right? So he's saying here the, the raven represents people who do not care about the body or do not care about the group, right? They don't care what's good for, them, for, 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 for the group. They only care about themselves. They only seek their own uh, selfish interests. So that when the raven flew away, if it found that there was some place that it could uh, that it could stay, then, it, then it, it sought its own. And actually many of the church fathers speak about 
how the reason that the raven did not return is because it actually landed on the corpses of the bodies of those who had died in the flood and was actually eating their bodies, right? And and so it's like the raven is representing like this kind of uh, like 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 this this kind of dark, wicked, uh, you know, symbol of those who would who would consume even the dead corpses, right? And so the that's where the raven would land because again there would be no no water or no no land no actual land for the raven to to land anyway. Um, whereas the dove represents those who are rooted and based in the church of Christ. When when they went out and they didn't find, then they came back again to the church. Um, so they are they're they're different, right? Um, verse ten. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove out of out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. Okay. So the first time when the dove was sent out, the dove had found no resting place for the sole of his feet. That's what it said. Okay. So this is a reference to the soul. Okay. Uh, which like represents like the the heavenly dove, like the soul, just like the dove in um, in uh, during the the time of the baptism of Christ represented the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like the, this represents the human spirit, okay, which um, does not want to find a place of rest among these corpses, right? That is in the world. So and it is attracted to the church, right? Like it's separated from the world. And wants to return to the church because the world outside is corrupt, right? The second time the dove was sent out, okay, um, it, it went out and, and returned proclaiming the peace of Christ, right? Because this olive branch represents like peace. And so it is bringing like this message of the peace of Christ into the world, okay? So after like the disappearance of the corpses and the uprooting of corruption through the new life of Christ, St. Augustine, actually, he says that the olive branch is a symbol of peace and that the olive, because the olive tree is like an evergreen tree. So it is like always green. Um, and it represents that man is filled with peace and would never lose the greenness, like would never lose the, his peace, regardless of storm, regardless of the change of weather, regardless of anything. Like this is why it you know, like represents constancy, right? Something that is evergreen represents constancy that throughout the, all the seasons, throughout the entire year, the tree is always the same, right? Just as we have the peace of Christ in us, regardless of whatever is happening around us. So this dove is bringing this message of peace, right? And stability um, back to the ark. The third time the dove went out, okay? And this time it did not return. But it, it's not that it didn't return out of like selfishness. It didn't like abandon Noah, right? But instead it was like proclaiming um, like, like essentially like making a procession toward a new earth. Like it's saying the earth is now prepared. Like we are going out into this new earth as though it's like representing man setting forth toward eternity, like as a new life, like we're starting a new world that has now been cleansed from all the old wickedness and it is new. And now we are going out and leading, essentially leading this procession of all of humanity, all the animals, everybody out of the ark, um, to, to this new earth that is now prepared, um, for the church. Okay. 
And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Okay, so he actually had not seen the land, right, up until now. And now he's looking out and he's finding that, um, that, the, that the water has subsided so much to where the land has become visible and to the point where now he's ready <coughs> to exit. And based on these dates, um, it was a total of 371 days that Noah spent in the ark. So it was a very long time. I mean, imagine trying to be there in that ark for, for that long. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Okay. So remember this, this command of being fruitful and multiply, right? This is actually the same thing that God had said to Adam and Eve. Okay. This is like a renewal of the covenant with them. He's saying, as I spoke to Adam and Eve before, right? And I told them, be fruitful and multiply, right? But that didn't work out because, because uh, God sent the flood and destroyed everything. So now it's like a, like, like a, like a, like a second creation almost. And he's saying, now that now it's time again to fill the earth, to start again anew, right? With the animals that you have and with those you know, people, those eight people. Uh, Noah, his wife, and their 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 family, right? So he said, now is the time to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Okay. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Okay, so... So if we look at this from a symbolic way, the first thing that Noah did after he exited the ark is he offered sacrifice. And of what animals? It was of the clean animals that Noah had brought with him into the ark. If you remember, when God was telling Noah how many animals to bring into the ark, he said, bring all the animals two by two, except the animals that were considered the clean animals. He asked God to bring seven of those animals, right? Because those were the animals that could be used to offer sacrifice. So here, Noah is taking of these clean animals, and he is offering a sacrifice. And if you look at symbolically, like these, these events that are happening, what they are pointing to, right? What are they pointing to, like in the New Testament? So we said that um, the flood is a type of baptism, that it's like, it's like in the flood, we are cleansed, right? So it represents baptism. And then the sacrifice that's being offered represents communion, which is partaking of the sacrifice. So it's like saying that the baptism comes first, which is the cleansing, and then the sacrifice or the communion comes after that. Also, it said that the, the, the sacrifice that was offered was for a soothing aroma, a soothing aroma. It's like the, 
the 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 smoke of this sacrifice rose up to God. The smell of it of the sacrifice of this burnt sacrifice rose up to God, and it was for a soothing aroma. We read this actually in Ephesians five verse two, and it says, "And walk in love." as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. All throughout the Old Testament, whenever we speak about the, the, the burnt sacrifices, we'd say that God would smell the smell of the sacrifice, and it would be like a, a soothing or a sweet-smelling aroma for him, right? That he is accepting the sacrifice, that the sacrifice is pleasing to him, that he accepts it for the, 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 as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a good offering from his people for the remission of sins as an offering of worship to him. So God is accepting this sacrifice of Noah and he is uh, favoring Noah and he is saying that everything that Noah has done has been in obedience to God and now there is a brand new beginning of the earth starting again. And we also, right in Ephesians 5, when we offer something to God, when we walk in love, which is what it says in Ephesians 5, that this is an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So whenever we are doing good works, whenever we are showing love and goodness to one another, it is like we are offering this sacrifice to God, just like Noah did, and God smells it. It is a sweet-smelling aroma, okay? Chapter 9. So God blessed... Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Okay. So again, this is again, the same command again, be fruitful and multiply, which is the renewal of the covenant that he had made with, that God had made with um, Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, and we read uh, when St. Augustine is speaking about how Noah is a type of Christ. Okay. Um, the first Adam, uh, it is through him that we inherited death, but it is through this Adam, the new Adam, which is Noah, that we inherit life. So St. Augustine, he speaks about this and he says this. He says, we have two births, one of them earthly and the other heavenly, one from the body and the other from the spirit, one of a corruptible nature and the other of an eternal nature, one from a man and a woman and the other from God and the church. One makes us sons of the body and the other makes us sons of the spirit. One makes us sons of death, and the other makes us sons of resurrection. One makes us sons of the world, and the other makes us sons of God. One makes us sons of curse and wrath, and the other makes us sons of blessing and love. One will bind us with the chains of sin, and the other will set us free from all its bonds. And here again, just as we had the first creation that happened, but then the fall, now what God is offering here to Noah and his family and for the whole world is a second chance, is a second beginning. So it again, symbolically, it is like we have our, our physical birth when we are born into the world, and then we have our spiritual birth, which is the birth and baptism, right? This is when we receive the Holy Spirit and we are indwelt with God and that we are able to walk with God and that he forgives us our sins and we become uh, children of God, okay? So here again, Noah is seen as a type of Christ because it is through him that now the world has been renewed and now there is a new beginning again, just as we have a new beginning after our baptism. So also that this flood represented baptism in the time of Noah. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing 
that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So God is emphasizing again the authority of man. You know, lest men think that now God has changed his view of him and he no longer has authority. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them authority and dominion over the whole earth. Adam was even the one who named the animals. So it's saying man is still at the top. He is the one who has authority and that all the rest of creation will fear man in the sense that man is more powerful, is, is, is higher than all of the other creation. Okay. Also here, um, he says in verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. If you remember before, when God had given uh, instructions on what is it that man should eat, they were only to eat the herbs. So they were eating only vegetables and herbs, whereas now they could actually eat meat. Okay. Not only that, but animals were now even to be used for the sacrifice. And according to the law of Moses, it would come later on in the book of Leviticus, when we read in more detail about the animal sacrifices, there were some types of animal sacrifices where the person making the offering would actually eat of the meat of the offering itself. Okay, so so here God is, is permitting the, the eating of, of meat, uh, whereas before it was not allowed, and it would actually even be part of the worship, the way that we would offer to God, they would eat parts of the sacrifice there. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So blood from very, very early was seen as the life force of the animal, right? It was seen as essential that the, that the blood was necessary for the life of the animal. Um, and so when God said you could eat the animal, he said you eat it without the blood, right? Like you first would have to kill the animal and then you would drain its blood before eating it. And we read this also in the law of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. It says, only be sure that you do not eat the blood for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat you shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. The blood was used during, again, the sacrifice. So whenever an animal would be brought to be offered to God, it would be slaughtered and the blood of the animal would be sprinkled on the altar. So it's like this blood belongs to God, right? Because God is the one who gave life. So God is the giver of life. The blood is what represents the life of the animal. And so when an animal is killed, the human does not eat the life of the animal. The life is given to God in the sacrifice, right? And then the human can eat like the meat, the flesh of the animal, but not the blood, okay? St. John Chrysostom, he says, so since they were ab about to offer sacrifices in the form of animals, he is teaching them in these words that as long as the blood has been set aside for me, the flesh is for you, Right? This is this is this is as long as the, the as long as the blood is for me, meaning to God, the flesh is for you. Someone is saying this is why we should have our meat well done. So I've asked this question about the the eating of the meat and whether the meat should be well done or not. Some people say that the juices that you have in the meat is not the blood; it's just the 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 redness of the flesh. So some people will say to be extra careful to follow this commandment uh, that they will say we should, uh, when we eat steak, for instance, we should have it well done. 
But other people will say that the, the juices or whatever is not the actual blood of the animal, right? Because the, the, the blood is what is in the, the veins or the arteries of the animal. And then it gets drained out when the meat is being cleaned. So there's just different opinions about that point. Whoever sheds man's bloods by man, his blood shall be shed. And for in the image of God, he made man. Someone is saying, I heard one of the fathers say that this reminds us of how when we partake of communion and drink the body of our Lord Jesus, we unite with him and have life through him. Yes, because he is the life blood. Like when we drink his blood, we have life through him. Very good. Um, let me read this again. Whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, he made man. Okay, so again, when someone sheds blood, they are taking away the life, right? So in the Old Testament, we know that the, the, the moral law was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So here, when, when God is saying this, he's saying someone who sheds the blood of another, he himself deserves to have his blood be shed, Okay. Because, God, because man is made in the image of God, which is different than the animals. When you kill an animal, this is lawful, right? It is lawful to kill an animal for food. It is lawful to kill an animal for sacrifice. But it is not lawful to kill a man because a man is made in the image of God. And if someone were to do this, then they would receive the same punishment as what they have committed. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God here is renewing his covenant again that he had made with Adam and promises never to destroy man again with a flood, right? Which is why at the end of chapter, um, uh, at the end of chapter eight, when it said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So essentially saying the normal functioning of the earth the fact that there are seasons, the fact that it's sometimes cold and sometimes hot, the fact that there is a day and a night, all of these things, right? The rotation of the earth, the sun, the moon, like all these things that we accept as being part of the normal cycle uh, of the earth will remain all the way up until the very end, right? Until the, the, the very end of the second coming. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all, to destroy all flesh." The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established 
between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So again, we know this uh, rainbow that God created to be a sign and a symbol of this covenant, that every time we would look upon it, we see it during the time of the rain, right? To remind ourselves that no, at no time is God ever going to send a destructive flood like he did before. That even though it rains and it might rain heavily, but it will never be a, a, like a flood that fills the whole earth the way that it had been filled before. And the rainbow is a sign and a reminder to remind us of this promise that God had made to Noah. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on, their, on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay. So I'm going to ask you this question. See, we can try to have some interactivity here. I ask you this. What do you think about Noah being drunk like this? What is your, what is your reaction and impression of this that just happened? If you want to raise your hand, I can unmute you if you want to talk, or you can just type it in the chat window. It's not good for him to be drunk. Yes. What else? Human weakness. Okay. Anything else someone wants to add? So some fathers actually say that Noah was not even aware of the properties of the wine because no one had ever been like drunk, fermented drink before and gotten drunk before. So, so he was saying that, that, or some fathers say he, he just wasn't aware that, that this was going to result in being drunk or that what being drunk was, okay? Uh, others will say that uh, it was a weakness, uh, but it was a one-time event and weakness. So St. Jerome, for instance, he says, nobody should say that drinking is not a sin. We read that Noah got drunk once, but God warns us not to think of him as an addicted drunkard. So, so we, it's like, was a moment of weakness, right? But we don't categorize him as saying he is a drunkard, but this is just something that happened, okay? So different people have different opinions about, uh, about this event, okay? But many will say that, that he wasn't aware of what was going to happen to him when he drank it. But the way the response was of his sons, okay? So when Ham saw uh, what happened, okay, Instead of like being discreet about it and, and like taking care of it in a discreet way, he went and he told his brothers, okay? But when his brothers heard it, okay, Shem and Japheth, they respected their father, right? They knew that he was in a vulnerable state. 
in an embarrassing state. And so they treated the matter very delicately um, instead of doing what Ham did and like spreading the news about what it is that had happened, okay? So it says, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. Okay, so who is it? We, we read that Ham was the one who went and told his brothers. Okay, so here he's cursing Canaan. Why is he doing that? So Origen, he believes that Canaan, who is the son of Ham, was actually also participating with Ham in what happened. So, so he's saying that he might have been mocking him um, and he also saw the nakedness of his grandfather and that Canaan might have even been the one who first saw him naked and then went and reported to Ham, his father. Okay, um, so, so in, in that interpretation, the reason that God is cursing, or sorry, that Noah is cursing Canaan here was because he was actually the one who first saw and shared it with Ham, uh, his father. Um, uh, also, some people will say it's because God had already blessed the sons of Noah, uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so because he had, that he had already blessed them, in order for him to give a curse, the curse would have to go to somebody else. So in this case, it was the son of Ham who was Canaan. Okay, but in any case, um, Ham was the one who was held responsible, and 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 that's why his son was cursed uh, for for this event, for not being discreet when his father had fallen into this. And he said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant." Okay, what does this mean? So Canaan, he was the ancestor of the Canaanites. Like when we read in the book of, uh, uh, of uh, Joshua, for instance, and in Judges, when we read about the Canaanites and how God is sending the Israelites to the promised land and the promised land is inhabited by the Canaanites. So the Canaanites are the enemies of God. They are pagans, okay, and they are enemies of God. And so here this is from this curse, okay, when, when it's saying, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, right? That, that Israel is going to uh, subjugate Canaan, okay? So God commanded the Israelites to destroy them. Shem was the ancestor of the, the Semite people, which is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the line of the Messiah. He was ancestor of all of the Jewish people, okay? And it was through him that all of the patriarchs and all of the prophets and ultimately the Messiah would come. And the name Shem means high or exalted, okay? The name Shem is the name where, is the, is the name where we get the term Semite. Like when you hear about Semitism, like, like a Semite person, okay, is referring to anyone coming from the line of Shem, okay, is a Semite, which is why we call the Jews Semites. Japheth, okay, his name means enlargement or fulfillment. Uh, when it says, may God enlarge Japheth, okay, in verse 27. Japheth was the ancestor of the Gentiles. So like anyone from like northern India, Asia, Europe, all of that area, this was, he was the father of those people, okay? So um, 
Shem, when it says, uh, may, uh, may God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. What do you think this means when he says that? What does it mean when it says, may God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem? Someone's asking, would God still honor the curse? <sighs> Certainly, I mean, a curse doesn't have to be a perpetual curse. It doesn't have to be a curse that lasts forever. Certainly a curse that lasts for a period of time causes effects that last for generations and generations uh, for a certain people. So, so definitely something that happened at a certain time doesn't necessarily have to mean that God is still cursing a group of people. No, I wouldn't say that. So what does it mean when it says that Japheth should dwell in the tents of Shem. Anybody? They be roommates? Huh? Um I compared like to the uh, to the Arabic translation, like so for the word enlarge. <clears throat> Like uh, the Arabic, it's like uh, saying like let God open up for Japheth, so like uh, give him prosperity, like or give him more prosperity, like uh, basically. Right. Yeah. For God, may God enlarge Japheth. But what does it mean that he would dwell in the tents of Shem? Like it would be sharing with Shem with uh, like with the blessings. Okay. So Shem, we said Shem is the ancestor of the Jews, right? And then it is from the Jews that the Christians came. So the Christians came out of Judaism. So we could say that Shem is representing here of the church, right? Japheth is representing all of these other nations who are Gentiles, okay? So what does it mean when we say the Gentiles will dwell in the tents of Shem? The Gentiles will dwell in the church. So this is actually a prophecy speaking about how in the future the gentiles are going to be among the people of god and dwelling in the church of god okay so that's that's what this means because shem again is the ancestor of the, of christianity you want to say and the church and japheth represents the gentiles who are going to come to faith And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Okay. Um, so that's the end of chapter nine. And that concludes the story of Noah and the ark. Okay. Chapter 10 is a lot of genealogy. This is one of those chapters that when you look at it, when you're reading the Bible, you're like, oh, Maybe I just need to skip this chapter. Or I'll just read it really fast, okay? But if you pay attention to some of the names and some of the places in here, it's actually very interesting because this is like the foundation of the nations, what we're reading about here. I mean, this is so early on that this is forming all of the nations and all the peoples. Like every single person that's mentioned in this chapter is like a patriarch of, of an entire nation, right? And so in order to kind of get a little bit better idea of where the nations came from, right, it's very interesting when we read. So I'm going to read it, 
Um, a lot of it is just going to be names, but I'm going to pause here and there to make note of certain names and certain things that maybe we feel is relevant. Okay. So it says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them and sons were born to them after the flood. Okay. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer was Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families and their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Septa, Rama, and Septica, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Okay, so remember we said um, Japheth, okay, is representing like Europe, the Gentiles, okay, like these other nations. From Ham, okay, was Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, okay. Ham had four sons, okay? Actually, this is in the previous verse here. Previous verse. Ham had four sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, okay? And the people that came out of these four sons were Arabia, okay? Nubia, Ethiopia, Egypt, and Canaan. These are some of the nations that came out of these four sons. In the Old Testament, Whenever you read, or in many places in the Old Testament, when you read in English the word Egypt, right? In the original Hebrew, it's actually Mizraim, because Mizraim was the ancestor of the Egyptians. And this is where in Arabic we get the word Masr or Misr. It's coming from Mizraim, okay? So whenever you read Mizraim, because sometimes in the New King James, it's actually kept as Mizraim, and sometimes it's translated Egypt, okay, from the Hebrew, this is where you will find this, okay? Um, the sons of Cush were Seba, Havila, Septa, Hav, uh, Rama, Saptaka, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan, okay? Seba uh, departed to Africa, okay? Which is why Seba is actually the, the, the um, sorry. Uh, this is why Cush in the Old Testament is most likely like meaning Ethiopia. Okay, so um, because Seba is the son of Cush, right? And Cush, whenever you read Cush in the Old Testament, it's referring most likely to Ethiopia and Nubia. Okay, Nubia is the southern part of Egypt, uh, which is near Ethiopia. Okay, and sometimes the south and middle of the Arabian Peninsula also. So in several dictionaries of the Bible, the word Cush is actually considered Ethiopia. It's like synonymous with Ethiopia. The descendants of Ham generally produced people and nations that were opponents of the work of God. Okay, so they were generally the, the nation of Cush was seen as a people that was against God. Okay, this is why in the Old Testament, like, like it came to proclaim the divine wrath on these people as being symbols of evil. Okay, so usually uh, Cush is seen as representing like evil people, similar to the Egyptians. The Egyptians also were in the Old Testament considered to be like evil, evil people. Um, uh, prophecies of the Old Testament, however, made it clear that even these people, whether it be Egyptians or Ethiopians or whoever, were all like had future hope in the in Christianity and the idea that the Gentiles were being drawn to faith 
so that the Gentiles would also be considered among the people of God. So even though like these peoples in the Old Testament were considered cursed and evil and, and against God, but it was always uh, given with the sense that at one point in the future, all of this would change. Just like, for instance, it said in the book of Isaiah that one day there will be alt an altar in the midst of Egypt, right? So this altar in the midst of Egypt represents the Coptic church because the Copts are uh, Gentiles. They are non-Jews, right? And they were actually considered among people who were considered as evil and wicked and representing even like, like the slavery of, of, of God's people, right, in the Old Testament. And yet they eventually became Christian, okay? So it's important for us when we're reading the Old Testament to understand that even though there was a nation that was considered wicked, right, but in, in, in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that it continues to be wicked. Like it's all, all depends on what the people accept. The, some nations accepted Christ and came to the faith and, and, and now are part of the church. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be my, a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Some people say that this man, Nimrod, is actually a historical Gilgamesh. So Gilgamesh was actually, there is epic poetry written about Gilgamesh that is still extant and you can read. This Gilgamesh, he was a king and a major hero in the civilization of Sumer from 2800 to 2500 BC. Okay. And these were, these people, these Sumerians were like the, the precursors of the Babylonians. Okay. And the, and Babylon later became a symbol of pride and challenge to God. And the, the word Nimrod means like mighty or mutinous in the sense that when it's saying that this is a mighty hunter before the Lord, it doesn't mean that he is like a mighty hunter that worships the Lord. It means that he is a mighty hunter in opposition to the Lord, arrogant against God, taking pride in his own might and his own ability in opposition to the Lord, which again falls into that same theme of the Babylonians, right? Babylon is always depicted in the Old Testament as being a nation that is opposed to God, right? Which is why when God was punishing his people, he allowed them to be exiled to Babylon, okay? So this person, Nimrod, is many people believe he is synonymous with Gilgamesh, who was a historical figure uh, in the Sumerian, in, in Sumer in, from 2800 to 2500 BC. <clears throat> And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Bethrusim, and Kalsuhim, Kesluhim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kephtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite. See, all these nations that we read about later in the Old Testament, we see their origins are coming from here, like the Jebusites. The Jebusites actually were a people that settled in the city of Jerusalem before it had even become part of, the, of Israel. So if you read in, uh, I believe it's in First or Second Samuel, um, the, the, the city is actually called Jebus which now is known as Jerusalem. It's called Jebus, and the Jebusites are the ones that are living there, okay? The Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite, the Ar 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 Arvadite, the Zemarite, the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. 
and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar as far as Gaza, then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And the ch and children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Jephthah the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and, and Aram. Okay. Um, these people, go back here. Um, these people here, Shem, he had five sons. And they dwelt in the region extending between the west of Asia and the east of the Mediterranean Sea. And so his descent, from his descendants came the Jews, the Arameans, the Assyrians, and the Arabs. And so all of these people are con considered Semites and all their languages are con considered Semitic languages. So um, whether it be the Jewish language, Aramean, Assyrian, and Arab, okay? Um, this also includes the Hebrew language, right? The Jewish language is Hebrew. Elam was the father of the Persians, okay? Asher was the father of the Assyrians. And Aram, from him comes the Aramaic language. When we speak about Aramaic, that is the language that was spoken by Christ and at the time of Christ, it is coming from this person, Aram. And this was an old Syrian language um, at the time, okay? Uh, also, uh, Eber, this mentions... Uh, Eber, the, the children, uh, in verse 21, it says, and children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Some will say that this name Eber is actually where we get the term Hebrew, right? When we speak about the Hebrews, it's coming from this person, uh, the children of Eber, okay? The sons of Aram were Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. St. Augustine, when he speaks about this idea of um, the, the, in his days the earth was divided, he's explaining that this means that many languages started to be used at the time, right? As opposed to being like one language, many languages started to be used um, for, in, for in his days the earth was divided. Joktan begot Almodad, uh, Shelef, Hazramevveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ofer, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Misha, as you go towards Sifar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according uh, to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So um, again, it's a long chapter of genealogies, but this is important for, for several reasons. One, for those who read the Bible, um, it's important to kind of see what are the, the foundations, the patriarchs of a lot of the nations that we read about and that they started so early on. And the second thing is, even for those who are not reading the Bible, but are trying to corroborate whether the Bible is true, uh, whether, whether it is accurate or not, um, when you see these names, okay, and then you can find external evidence outside the Bible, like, for instance, archaeological evidence, 
that verifies the existence of these people in these nations, it gives more credence to the truthfulness of the Bible. Actually, one of the ways that people who attack Christianity try to show that Christianity is false and the Bible is, is false is they'll come and find some civilization or some name and they say there is no evidence for such a person. So for instance, uh, even much more recently than this, for a long time, uh, uh, people were saying there is no evidence for the existence of Pontius Pilate. And they say that there was there is no historical evidence. The only place that he was mentioned was in the Bible. And so for that reason, we don't believe that he exists, right? This was like the scientific community. And then eventually was found archeological evidence that has his name like inscribed in it, which showed that he actually was a real person that existed. And so also with a lot of these nations and a lot of the evidence that's found, a lot of times people will say, these are not real people or these, you know, this is all fabricated until archeological evidence is found to prove that in fact, these people actually really did exist. So even though it might seem dry reading for us when we, we read these chapters, they're actually very important because they verify the validity and the truthfulness of this account. And sometimes it even talks about people that we didn't even know existed from external evidence. And then later when you discover that they actually do exist, well, the Bible has been saying it all along. It's just people were not taking it seriously. So again, this is a interesting period of history where a lot of the foundational things are, are set for us to kind of move forward from this as civilization and culture is expanding and, and, and being established. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, O Lord, for this day. Thank you for your guidance and your mercy. Grant us your peace, strengthen us and all your people. Help us to overcome, O Lord, all tribulations and help us to learn, O Lord, from the story of Noah and the ark of how much you were with him and guided him and protected him all throughout his life. And throughout this time, from when you asked him to begin constructing the ark to the time that you allowed him to come out of it uh, joyfully. We thank you, O Lord, for your kindness. Allow us, O Lord, to learn and to, and to benefit and to prosper from whatever trials you might offer us and to feel your mighty presence with us, guiding and protecting us. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.